Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. It's mentally yours from Ellen and Yvette. A focus on your mental health, you surely won't regret. It's mentally, 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 mentally yours. Mentally yours. Mentally yours. Hi everyone and welcome to Mentally Yours, Metro.co.uk's weekly mental health podcast. I'm Yvette. And I'm Ellen. And today we're talking to Albert Mukheba. He's the author of a new book called Your Brain is Playing Tricks on You, How the Brain Shapes Opinions and Perceptions. Albert is a neuroscientist and a psychologist and he's really smart and into all these things about how our brain works the way it does in kind of helpful and unhelpful ways. We're going to be chatting with him about that as well as memory, self-doubt, anxiety. It's a really fascinating one, so give it a listen. I started doing my studies in psychology initially, and during one of my um, studies, I was working in a psychiatry ward in Paris. One of my directors actually introduced me to the world of neuroscience, which is basically the biological uh, correlates of our psychology, because I do cognitive neuroscience, so there are many families of neuroscience. You have computational neuroscience, etc. I do cognitive neuroscience, so how our brain works from a functional point of view, how do we form our thoughts, how do we take a decision, How? what's the relationship between our intuitions and our emotions and our decision-making, etc. So then I shifted from psychology into a PhD on neuroscience, where I worked on something called social phobia, maybe you've heard of it, or social anxiety. And then I started working on how our brain makes sense out of the world that doesn't always make sense. So that was the, the, the subject of my book, which is called Your Brain is Playing Tricks on You, and which is kind of a, 
an introduction on how our brain recreates reality. Because, for example, the listeners are now hearing us not through their ears, but through their brain. Our ears and our eyes and our senses are just like uh, receptors that are going to transform the information from the outside or the inside world in an electric signal that's going to be recreated by the brain. And these during these mechanisms of perception, there are a few things that can happen along the way that can sometimes trick us in a good way and sometimes trick us in a bad way. So we explore a bit these different mechanisms and their impact uh, either on our daily lives, whether it's, for example, stress or our interpersonal relationship or on society in a larger scale, for example, such as fake news or when we have to do uh, group decision making, etc. Can you tell us a bit about the tricks that our brain plays that maybe aren't so helpful and could be making us you know, less happy or mentally unwell? Yeah, so our brain is always recreating reality, but the way we recreate reality can be different depending on, for example, our the state of our body. For example, if I haven't slept, I can be more irritable and then something that wouldn't make me angry would make me angry on another day. And so there are certain states which are going to skew a bit the way we're going to react to something for example when we're stressed our brain is going to go into a pattern that we call hypervigilance and catastrophization for because of evolutionary reason when we're stressed our brain thinks that there's a danger and becomes hypervigilant everything becomes super important we're not able to weigh things for example if i'm stressed because of a presentation i have to give at work um, i might spend 10 minutes changing the size of the font of a word from like 10 to 11 to 12 and then back to 11 and i become like extremely bogged down by details and this is the first thing that stress is going to change in the way we're going to recreate and interpret the world and the second part is catastrophization our brain is a predictive organ we're constantly trying to predict what's going to happen so that we can prepare ourselves and when we're stressed um, we're going to predict that the future is going to be not so well so we're going to imagine that we are going to fail that it's not going to go well that my boss is not going to be satisfied with my work or that the date i'm going on i'm going to be rejected or that my friends are talking behind my back etc and all these are coming from my this state that we call stress so stress is not just the anxiety but it's also the modulation of the way uh we reduce this ambiguity to the way we deal with uncertainty. Any uncertain situation in the future is always uncertain because it's not here yet, is going to be uh, transformed uh, negatively. And these stabilization of ambiguity happen whether it's on the future, for example, in stress, for example, in depression, we can modulate the past to imagine that ah, oh, before it was better and now it's not so good and then we're going to get ourselves down. And we can also do it in social relationships. Like I said, I work, for example, on social phobia. But another thing that's going to uh, bias, we call these cognitive biases, going to bias the way I interpret social cues. Like, let's imagine someone is jealous. What does it really mean to be jealous? When you're describing the personality of someone, you're really describing the way they're going to stabilize this ambiguity, the way they're going to deal with uncertain situations. So if I'm jealous... And no one decides to be jealous. No one goes, oh, when I'm going to be older, I'm going to grow jealous. We just become jealous without actually deciding it. Being jealous, for example, I call the person that I'm in a relationship with and they don't answer. I don't know why they don't, uh, why they're not answering because it's an uncertain situation. Being jealous is telling myself they're not answering because they're cheating on me, for example. And I'm going to take this as a fact. So this stabilization of 
uncertainty is constantly being woven by my bodily state, for example, as stress, my personality, my cultural baggage, everything that makes me who I am. We we usually say you're unique like everyone else. And what makes you unique is the way that you stabilize all these incomplete information. We're constantly dealing with uncertainty, but we, we don't see it. It's invisible to us because our brain is constantly stabilizing reality without actually making it appear that way. We feel like reality is stable and coherent, whereas tons of mental operation are going on all the time to give us this illusion of continuity. And why does the brain work in a way that it does? Because it sounds like there's a lot of it sort of filled in the in the gaps for you. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. Like this subjection of uncertainty is a filling of the gaps and we fill the gaps with our priors. Again, our priors can be our personality, but it can also be our beliefs, our political orientation, our culture, the way we the place our relationship with our parents or with our friends, etc. And we do this to be able to function because um we only think about the humans in our current world, but for the longest of our existence as as humans, as Homo sapiens, we lived as hunter gatherers, and we lived in a relatively hostile environment. We didn't have houses, we didn't settle, etc. And we needed to act fast to know if there's a predator. I need to run. I need to hunt. I need to eat. I need to find shelter, etc., etc. And we don't have time. Uh, to, to calculate everything and make sure that we're absolutely right. So our brain works through approximations and predictions. Our brain is constantly doing this operation, approximating and predicting and adapting. And we do this for efficiency. Otherwise, it wouldn't be efficient. We call these shortcuts heuristics. And these heuristics are really important for us to be able to function. It's just that sometimes when you go fast and you take shortcuts, you're going to miss a few beats. And when you miss a few beats, it can have... A negative consequence instead of being actually extremely useful. Why is it that some of us are more prone to, you know, take those bad pathways or unhealthy pathways? Because I think, you know, you mentioned people with depression will view the past in a certain way, or people with anxiety will kind of view the worst possible outcome. Why is that? Is it just a genetic thing? Is it something that we can unlearn? Um, so the theoretical model, if we talk about sciencey way is something we call by the biopsychosocial model so it's constant interactions between your biology whether it's your genes or the state of your body like if i have a back pain it's going to impact the way i'm going to function because it's not a good thing to have i might be less patient etc because pain is also a big modulator so the biological part then there's the psychological part the way i talk to myself we call these metacognitions like thinking about thinking the way we discuss internally the way we regulate our emotions the way we interpret the world and then social the fabric where we live because sometimes it's not my fault because that i'm interpreted negatively for example i don't know i might be a minority and i'm discriminated in a certain society then it's the social aspect that is causing my negative uh, quality of life. So it's always an interaction between these biopsychosocial factors. Of course, there are some things that are more biological, some things that are more psychological, some things that are more social, and then we have studies to try and weigh all these things together. And can we do something about it? Yes, for a lot of things we can. Sometimes it takes time. It's a bit like the training. We can learn to do what we call metacognitive control, how to challenge our automatic thoughts, these best guesses, 
which are the result of these shortcuts that our brain is constantly doing. For example, if I take again the example of the chalice person, I got the person I'm with in a couple with, and then they don't answer. And the first, the best guess of my brain, because I am a jealous person, by definition is going to be, ah, they're cheating on me. I don't have to feel ownership towards this idea because I never chose it. So I can put like a stopgap between the idea and its validation. We used to we say in therapy, for example, I'm not responsible for my first thought, but I'm responsible for what I do with it. Same thing goes for the body. If I have, if I'm irritable because I haven't eaten, there's a word in English that's called hangry. It's because you're angry because you're hungry. Maybe then I can eat and then go back to the mail that I wanted to write instead of writing it uh, under the stress of I want to finish fast because I want to go eat or because I'm so tired that I need to sleep. Maybe I should sleep and then do it later. And most of these things, even when they have a biological uh, genetic factor, genetics is is a field that is booming and we're discovering that it's not as deterministic as we used to think. So. Yes, there is a bit of leeway. Of course, if something is, for example, very if person has a temperament, which is harder to change, it's going to be hard. But for a lot of these things, we can learn. Our studies show that, for example, resilience of stress is something that can be learned and acquired as a skill. Mm, tell us more about that. How can we get more resilient? That sounds great. Resilience is a bit of a tricky topic because everyone wants to be more resilient. But sometimes the first step is to ask ourselves, should I be more resilient? Because in some situations resilience can become a negative thing for example if i'm a, if i'm in a work if i'm in a job if i'm working a job that works i don't know 60 hours per week and i want to be more resilient that's not really realistic sometimes we have to recognize that adapting to something that's bad is actually bad and i should change my situation like when we're doing therapy we're usually doing one of two things either we're trying to change the way we're interpreting information. So I go back to my jealousy example, and the goal is to be able to take these ideas and then change them, reinstate uncertainty, tell myself, I don't know why this person is not answering. Maybe I'll, I'll ask them. Um, and the other part in therapy is changing actually the situation. For example, if I'm in a relationship that's actually a bad situation because I'm being abused or whatever, I didn't want to in therapy change the way I'm interpreting the situation. I'm going to work in therapy to break up and then go into a healthier situation. So resilience, most of the time when we talk about resilience, people only talk about the first aspect, how I'm going to adapt to a situation. But resilience is also sometimes knowing when to say, stop, I want to leave. So this is the first step towards resilience is understanding if I need to be more able to resist or if I should actually put my energy into changing the situation. Once I've established that it's the first one, resilience is a word that comes from physics, actually. It's how much can you put a weight on a spring before you before it loses its capacity to be a spring. Like if you take a spring and then you, you put too much weight on it, it denatures and then it doesn't go back to its initial form. Psychology is a bit of the same thing. How much can you put the stress on a system, which is the cognitive system, and then have it go back initially. So a resilient person is not a person that go that's always okay. Like if we take a, two brothers or two sisters and one of the parents get very, very sick, one of the brothers, uh, let's say there are two brothers, one of the brothers gets totally depressed because the parent is sick and the other one is going to take care of giving them a bath, preparing food, taking them to their appointments, etc. 
both of them are probably depressed by the fact that their parent is sick. It's just that the second one is more resilient. So resilience is how much can we keep on functioning in a situation that is not great. And then when the stressor is gone, let's say the parent gets better, how fast can I go back to my initial state? And the way we learn to do this, once we've established that resilience is the actual uh, correct answer and adaptive answer, um, it goes through controlling the body. Again, we go back to this. Our, our, our brain is creating ideas out of our thoughts, but also out of the state of our body. We call this embodied cognition. Like our cognition, our thoughts are not only in our brain. Our thought, our brain is a sort of a, uh, integrative center for also the senses that come from our body that is also integrated in a social uh, sphere. So we need to take into account the three levels. We're going to work on the thoughts, the cognitive processes. We're going to work on the state of the body. You need to rest. You need to not be in a fight and flight mode. You need to unclench your jaw, uh, get some sleep, get fluids, eat, etc. Because when you're very tense, you tend to ignore a bit the signals of your body. And then the social aspect. We are social animals. Be resilient. We also need a social support network or even friends or have other activities and not be just centered on the source of tension that is requiring this resilience. So it goes through cognition and then embodied cognition. So what am I telling myself? The thoughts that are going through my brain and the emotions that I'm feeling, the state of my body and the state of my environment. I think it's tricky because when we talk about the theory, it all makes total sense. But when you're actually in the moment of, you know, feeling upset or angry and it is skewing the way that you perceive things or changing the way you think, it's really difficult to recognize that. How do you kind of change that habit? How do you make it so that you're able to step back and go, oh, actually, this isn't reality. This is, you know, something else is going on to tell me to view it in that way time and also being realistic that it's not going to happen in the moment like not being too harsh on yourself sometimes i tell the people that come in therapy like procrastinate your stress we always talk about procrastination as a bad thing like because we're always procrastinating the things we should do but we can also procrastinate the things we shouldn't do so maybe create some sort of temporal displacement tell myself i'll worry about this in two hours and see if it's still useful ask my friends there's a paradox in psychology called the solomon paradox solomon was a king in the old testament and everyone throughout the kingdom would come to king solomon for advice and he would give the best advice but then the problem was that king solomon was really really bad like sucked at giving advice to himself and so we call this the paradox of solomon we're really good at giving advice at, for others but we're really bad at giving advice for ourselves so maybe we can also use this ask someone that that's close to me what would you do in my place? And then maybe trust them instead of trusting ourselves. I also work a lot on critical thinking and all these like social networks and fake news. And I often say like one of the biggest misconceptions on critical thinking, but it's also true in therapy, is thinking by yourself. We are social animals and sometimes we need to think with others. Having people we can trust that can give us opinion and advice and then telling myself I'm not in my normal state I'm going to follow their advice and go against my own advice like while my brain is screaming do this do this and then we say no I'm going to trust this person because I know that we that they have my best interest at heart so we shouldn't think about this as an individual answer how can I solve all these things by myself 
there is no magic trick and magic pill for this. We have to take time to understand that negative emotions are part of our palette of emotions that we need to rehabilitate. Sometimes feeling depressed for a day or two is actually healthy. It's it's my brain that is telling me this is not something that's good for you and we should listen to it. Sometimes feeling sad when if I, if I just broke up, feeling sad, if I just fired and I shouldn't immediately throw myself into this positive attitude of, oh, it's fine, I'm going to find a new job. No, it sucks to get fired and it's okay to feel like shit for for a bit of time and then get back on the saddle. But I feel like today we have this positivity. Uh, we call this in France, happy crassi, like a happy crassi. Like, like a, I think there's democracy and then there's happy crassi, but it's more like a dictatorship, like a happiness dictatorship. There's a book that came out that's called Happy Crassi. Like I don't know how to translate it. It's like it's a happiness dictatorship where everyone has to be happy all the time. Like at work you have chief happiness officers and positive emotions all the time no this is absurd like it can have something we call a backfire effect if you try to positivize everything when the situation is bad when you have a bad pay because people are underpaid when you're overworked etc you shouldn't feel positive about it you should either try to change it or see what you're going to do about it but shutting out all negative emotion is i don't think is the actual way to go from your book, what other concepts do you think readers um, will be surprised to hear about? Because you've already already sort of touched on a few there, which are really interesting, but maybe not sort of our normal way of thinking about things. Um, are there some other key concepts that you'd like to share with us? The part of our storyteller brain, the way our brain is constantly weaving stories, like if you think about your day, it's actually like a movie, like in movies, directors do what we call cuts. Like you see the main character get in a car and then it cuts and then they arrive to their destination, etc. And if you pause a second and think about your day or if our listeners think about their day, you're going to realize that their memory functions also a bit like cuts. Like I woke up, I went to work and then there's a cut between me waking up and going to work. If I close my eyes and think about my uh, tube uh, trip, I can see people in the tube because I know it was it wasn't empty and these people have clothes and they're on their phones etc but all this is being made up by my brain because when I was on the tube I was probably either on my phone or I was just daydreaming and I wasn't looking for the details at who is wearing what etc etc and all these people that are in my memory right now are being invented and so this constant recreation of the world is something that is central and in my book the first three chapters are the basics of how I recreate reality, but then the other uh, few chapters are the, the different contexts that modulate them. So there's a chapter on how stress changes them. There's a, a chapter on something called motivated reasoning. And motivated reasoning is like we can think about things in two ways. Either I can think like a detective. I can follow the evidence and then get to a conclusion or i can think like a lawyer a lawyer has their client and they're going to reorganize the evidence in order to defend their clients and motivated reasoning is when we're thinking more like uh, a lawyer like we have decided about the end point of our reasoning and we're going to reorganize reality in order to get there and when you have when you're a motivated reasoner it becomes really complicated to discuss with other people because you are already your mind is already set there's also another concept I don't know if the listeners are familiar with, which is 
a very important piece of our uh, cognition that is called dis cognitive dissonance, when I find myself in a contradiction and how I solve cognitive dissonance. And then there's uh, maybe the last one we can talk about today uh, in the concepts that I think are central is something called learned helplessness. And learned helplessness is when we don't try to change something because we think that it's not possible. And learned helplessness touches upon many, many topics. It touches upon the sexism, goes from sexism and how for a long time for example society put women in a situation of learned helplessness where women thought that they were less good than men for example in math and we discovered this so if we have time to explain the experiment like we gave the same math test for women and men and even boys and girls because we were done at school and boys would do it better and people would say, well, we're sorry, these are the facts. We shouldn't be politically correct, uh, uh, just that men are better than women in math. But then when we discovered that helplessness, we wondered maybe that we are teaching women that they're not that good and little girls that they're not that good at math. So we redid the experiment. We gave them the same ex exercise and boys were still succeeding better. And then for another group of participants, we gave them the same exercise, but we changed one tiny thing. We told them in the, uh, in the header of the exercise that, this math exercise was tailor-made for girls. And it was completely false. Like, it, it was just regular math exercise. And just doing this cognitive correction, telling little girls that these math are math for girls, uh, made the difference uh, disappear. And then we replicated this in another task where we asked boys and girls to draw a figure. And we told them, we told them that this was a mathematical geometry uh, test and boys succeeded better than girls. And then we gave them the same drawing and we told, the, we told another group to draw this drawing and we told them that this was not the math exercise we told them that this was a drawing an art class exercise and then the girls would succeed much better so it's not only about the our skills it's also about how much we can access these skills and accessing these skills depend on the stories we tell ourselves and learned helplessness is a story of failure where we tell ourselves you can't do it so we don't even try and again learned helplessness is is also involved in depression but it's also involved in why we have a hard time dealing for example with climate change because we tell ourselves that this is too big so we can't really do anything about it so we don't try like if i eat a little less meat is it really going to help the ice caps not melt away Obviously not, so it's pointless to do it or to recycle or to do all these things or take less plane, etc., etc. Those are so interesting. I love the um, math experiment. That's so interesting. I think um, my final question for you would be, are there any kind of exercises or hacks that we can do to use the way that our brain works to our advantage? Kind of similar in the way that that experiment essentially tricked the girls into thinking oh, actually this is designed for me what can we do kind of day to day that will help us in that way um so the last chapter of a book is like a toolbox on what we can do but i to be really honest my goal was not to do like a tips and tricks book because i think we're more complex than this and uh, and i'm not uh, like i know it's important but at the same time what I find interesting is our complexity. So I wanted to do a book that is more explanatory of everyday life, not something that's theoretical. So if listeners read the book, I hope I succeeded in in transmitting this. It's not like a science-y. There there's obviously, it's all based on science experiment, but I try to always bring it back to our daily lives and on things that can happen to each and every one of us. And this is why only the last chapter is like a bit of tips and tricks, because 
I couldn't just say this, your brain's playing tricks on you and you can't do anything. But it's not like my favorite part because I think there's so much like self-help and personal development, etc. things. And I'm again, I'm not sure that it's the best way going about doing it. But there are a few things like, again, putting the stopgap, having a better cognitive, a better metacognitive control, not just believing every single automatic thought and automatic emotion that crosses my mind taking the time to know who to trust and trust others over myself, reframing things, because the math experiment you were talking about is just a goal of reframing things. And maybe maybe I'm having what we call selection and confirmation biases. Maybe I'm just remembering a few events and forgetting all the other events where things went really well. Like I go to work and then I get a bad remark from uh, a co-worker and I go home and I'm like, oh, I suck. And, but I, I, this is because I'm forgetting all the other days where no one told me anything. And maybe they even told me that my, I'm doing an actual good job. So these, it's all like, it's uh, trying to reinstate this uncertainty of the world instead of always wanting to make sure like, I often hear people saying our brain doesn't like uncertainty and it's not true. Uh, our, our actions squish uncertainty because when I need to act, reality is something that is, Either I do it or I don't. I, like if I want to move and I'm not sure that I want to move, I can't like half move. I can't put my bed in an apartment and then my living room in another apartment. So this is where uncertainty needs to be stabilized. But for all the other situations, being uncertain is accepting this complexity and this diversity of reality. And I think it, it actually makes us more, uh, have a richer internal life of seeing different points of view. We can understand each other better and then recreate society a healthier way of, of living together. Some this is goodbye from mentally yours. So go away, enjoy your day, get on with all your chores from mentally, 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 mentally yours. Mentally yours. Mentally yours. Mentally yours. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.